You should be thankful. Your temptation's been lifted. What did you do? I saw you at Loaves and Fishes talking to that Martha. Aunt Lydia told me to watch you. To try and protect you. I saved you. We saved you. You saved me. What did you do? What did you do? Do you have any idea what you did? Do you? You fucking bitch! Do you? Do you know what you did? Hi, this is Gina, and welcome to the latest episode of Resisting Gilead. Today, we are going to be discussing Season 3, Episode 7, titled Under His Eye. So, I have to say that this is probably my least favorite episode of The Handmaid's Tale, not just this season so far, but ever. I just don't feel there was a lot of movement. I feel that June is really massively messing up on a variety of levels. She's She is very personally driven in her quest to bring down Gilead and get her daughter back, but she, ugh, it's, it's not doing her any favors right now. I think I mentioned before that it was like we had taken 10 giant steps forward at the beginning of the season, and it's like 20 steps back. Maybe I said five steps forward and 10 steps back, but whatever traction we gained, it just feels like we've lost all of it and and even more. So probably going to make this fairly quick, not fairly quick, but there are really just kind of maybe three key pillars to talk about this week in terms of storyline, which are Fred and Serena Joy in the Capitol. We've got a bit with Emily and Moira in Canada, and then we have the storyline with June and Mrs. Lawrence and and the trip to go see Hannah. And then kind of underlying everything is the Salvagines are back on in Gilead. I mean, they probably never went away. We just haven't seen one. We haven't seen one that the Handmaids have actively participated in since the end of season one. We did see one with Eden and that guard last year, I guess, season two. But, you know, they're back to these salvagines and, and hanging people. Um, primarily hanging people is, is what it looks like at this point. Which, you know, maybe that's a, a step up from having to, you know, either kick someone to death or, or stone them to death. It's, it's a little more hands-off, but not really. So starting with Serena, Joy, and Fred, I mean... These guys are settling in. Fred says he's still trying to get the baby back, but Commander Winslow has basically said there are some benefits to us for dragging this out a little bit. You know, apparently it, it makes Gilead look maybe a little more sympathetic. Um, I don't know how people could look at the society and think it's anything but totally freaking crazy. But they're kind of dragging it out for political purposes. And then even Fred and Serena Joy go on a date one night. It's very like 
1940s supper club place. It's quite interesting and beautiful. Like this is the first time we've seen any type of restaurant in Gilead. So they go out to dinner and, you know, Fred tells Serena how dedicated he is to getting Nicole back. And she's like, oh, it's good to hear you say that because, you know, there would be advantages for not getting her back sooner than later. Uh, so even she recognizes it, but he, he kind of lies to her. You know, he he says, oh, people think that, but I'm not one of them. And while he may not be one of them, he's still <laughs> he's still going to walk the party line because that's what Fred does. And so we see them have this kind of nice date night, I guess. And then we see them a little bit later at a party, another kind of very opulent location, uh, the women are still dressed in their signature teal, but it's very much more evening formal wear. And this definitely seems to me, I don't know, the the designs definitely seem to be kind of like both caps stuck in the 1960s and maybe the 1980s. And I would say definitely the more conservative, less funky portions of those decades. Uh, very long, very classic. Um, you know, the women have their little hen clutches and they all get together and we're talking about how beautiful the space is. And, you know, Mrs. Winslow introduces Serena Joy to people. And, you know, one of the women was responsible for transforming the space, I guess you would say. And then they talk about how, you know, their husbands, well, her husband will get all the credit and Serena's like, isn't that always the way it is? And they all kind of laugh and chuckle and, you know, it's kind of the same old story. And I don't know if Serena Joy is setting herself up for more disappointment um, by trying to start over and have a new life in the capital or, you know, is she going to be able to make some traction? It seems like these wives are very much... Uh, you know, maybe a little bit more like Serena Joy was back in Boston, but, um, you know, none of them are missing a finger, so they can't be that aggressive with their goals, uh, even though, you know, Commander Winslow's wife, Mrs. Winslow, had, had said, you know, she'd read Serena Joy's book. She thought it was brilliant. You know, these are very highly educated women, it seems like, but again, are you know, in their own way, they aren't wearing rings in their mouth, but in their own way, they are silenced as well. So it's very interesting. So next we shift on to, let's shift up to Canada and talk a little bit about Emily and Moira. So we see Emily first and that woman from the Swiss, I don't know, embassy government is questioning Emily about the crime she committed when she was in Gilead. And this all has to do with baby Nicole. Uh, and, you know, she's really grilling Emily. <laughs> you know, she, she ran over a guard. She stole a car. Um, there's kind of a long list of things that the woman ticks through. And Emily's wife says, you know, none of this matters to her. I found it interesting that the one thing that was left off of this list was the affair that she had with the Martha that ultimately led to that Martha getting assassinated, hung, not assassinated, executed, I guess is, is the better word for it, the more proper word. 
And that also this affair led to Emily um, having female genital mutilation performed on her. So while I think her wife knows about the mutilation, I don't know if she knows about the affair and what led to that and everything else. Um, it seemed odd that out of all the crimes she committed, they, they left that specific one out. But um, later we see Emily and Moira in a coffee shop and, you know, they're chatting about their days back in Boston and Moira's like trying to find their gay in common, I guess you would say, and is kind of amazed to figure out they have no gay friends, community, anything in common. Then Moira says, oh, I've got to run. I've got to get in the face of this guy who, you know, is, is trying to, or is, you know, considering sending baby Nicole back to Gilead. And, and Emily's like, I'm coming with you. She also gets in the guy's face. They are rounded up, sent to jail for their protesting. And um, they continue to have a conversation in the jail cell about some of those crimes they both committed when they're in Gilead. And, you know, one that Emily admits to that I think even the Gilead government doesn't know about is that she poisoned that one wife uh, in the colonies, um, who I believe was played by Marissa Tomei. Um, I think that was her guest starring role. Um, and then Moira talks about, like, we knew she had stabbed someone. I thought she had just stabbed a driver because she was able to take off with the van and his uniform. But, you know, she said, oh, I, I killed a commander and I didn't have to because he was sleeping. So maybe that is who she killed to escape. Um, but I'd always kind of assumed it was a driver because she had keys to a vehicle. She had a driver's uniform and maybe she killed both. Who knows? Um, but, you know, they talk about these crimes and they're kind of feeling slightly guilty about it. But, you know, really, these ladies did what they had to to survive. And, you know, maybe it wasn't necessarily physically survival in all cases. <clears throat> maybe, it, you know, maybe it wasn't actually physical survival in all of these cases, especially where Emily is concerned. She was not physically at risk either time that, you know, she killed the wife in the colonies. She wasn't at that moment physically at risk when she stole the car and ran over the guard. But, you know, I think there's something to be said about your state of your mental survival as well. So they talk about this and Moira's just like, listen, you haven't killed anyone since you've moved to Canada, have you? And she's like, well, no. She says, neither have I. And I think that's like the best we can expect of ourselves. You know, we, we aren't performing those crimes here. And, you know, I mean, honestly, Emily can claim a lot, many more murders, um, maybe not murders in the eyes of Gilead, but, you know, as a handmaid, she participated in so many salvagings, I'm sure, you know, we really only saw the one um, where they kicked a guard to death. I think that was in the very first episode of the series, but you know, there are likely others. It sounds like it was a normal part of their routine that, you know, these guys are not only, these women are not only sexual slaves, but they are a very strange executionary army as well. It's just totally messed up. I mean, good grief. Could you even imagine this happening in the world somewhere? Well, I'm sure it does. So... I guess um, 
You know, I want to, I want to go back to Emily and Serena just for a minute because I, I realized, I know I talked about a Sound of Music reference last week and, and then it hit me later that it was actually a deeper reference than I thought before because that Rolf and Liesl dancing in the garden, little scene 16 going on 17, Ultimately, Rolf betrays Liesel. He joins the Third Reich and he rats out her family when they're trying to escape. And so that is a betrayal. And, you know, the same holds true for Nick and June. You know, he didn't, he betrayed her. Uh, he didn't participate with the Swiss government. And, um, you know, June finds out about it. And so it is that same type of, oh, we're so in love one moment and then the next moment we kind of find out where true loyalties lie. I mean, and so Sound of Music popped into my head again when Fred and Serena were doing that very elaborate dance. Um, it just seemed so surreal to me that this was happening that for a minute I'm like, is this all happening in Serena's imagination? you know, just kind of the whole looking longingly at Fred from across the room and he comes over and when they begin dancing, everything stops around them. Everyone's watching them. I'm like, this is so cheesy. This has got to be like all in her head, but it wasn't. Um, it was just like another very strange party scene from The Sound of Music. So maybe... I don't know. I doubt that's intentional, but there is something just about the fact that, you know, there's this hideous society that's happening. And in Sound of Music, it was, you know, the Nazis were gaining power, you know, but life was happening at the same time. And this is, it's kind of like it from the inside out. Um, but man, it just does look like the whole thing is from a different time. It's very kind of 1940s. Uh, when it comes down to it, it's, it's pretty surreal. So I guess really the primary thread of this episode was June's quest to see her daughter, Hannah, at the school she goes to in Brookline, the Brookline area of Boston, which, you know, it's hard to tell what neighborhood June is living in now. It seems, I used to live in Boston, so well, I used to live in Alston, which is right next to Brookline, uh, and is a few miles from downtown Boston. So I have a feeling she's closer to downtown somewhere. I, I don't know. Um, it's It's been many years since I lived there. But it looks like the market they are shopping at is primarily more downtown Boston somewhere. So she... It's a hike to Brookline. It's probably like a, a 30 to 45 minute T ride, which is the public transportation they, they have there. Um, I'm sure that's not really what they call it in Gilead, but it's what we hear Mrs. Lawrence call it. Um, so June has this idea that she is going to take Mrs. Lawrence out as her cover to get to this school. And, you know, they're walking along. They run into... Um, Naomi and baby Angela along the way. Um, Mrs. Lawrence is 
very sweet towards the baby, but she's also like, we all thought you were going to die, baby. We're so glad you did it. And it's just like, oh, well, there's, there's a brutal truth. <laughs> yeah, we all thought that baby was going to die at one point. Um, Naomi's just giving them very strange looks. You know, I think she's kind of surprised to see them getting along so well. Um, you know, maybe particularly with uh, Mrs. Lawrence's illness, which, you know, we learn, we know she's mentally ill. We've we've had that feeling. We, you know, there hasn't been kind of an explained diagnosis in, in terms of what might be wrong with her, but she and June start talking about Mrs. Lawrence and Mr. Lawrence, Commander Lawrence, never tried to have children, but she really wanted children. But because of her mental health status and the fact that she was on so many medications, he was very against um, them trying to get pregnant and have a baby. So, you know, and that is a choice that many couples make. If one of the partners is is mentally ill, they, they don't want to pass it on to the child. And in fact, recently I read an article about a woman who was quite young, um, not even 30 yet, and uh, recently married, and she wanted to get a tubal ligation so she could not get pregnant. And she had to go through a lot of hoops to just to be able to get that procedure because she had not had children. She had to, I think, bring her husband in to get him to agree that uh, he was okay with this. And, um, you know, her primary reason was that she suffered from mental illness and she did not want to pass on, the, you know, her, her genetic issues. She did not want to have a child that suffered from this as well, or didn't, didn't want a child to suffer from this if, if it didn't have to. Um, I believe they went on and adopted, which with adoption, you never know what you're going to get, but I think maybe you feel better about taking some responsibility that you're not passing, um, your mental illness along in the gene pool. Um, so this was kind of the decision the Lawrence's made, whether or not Mrs. Lawrence was really on board with that or not. It seemed like she'd really wanted children. And when June hears this, she feels, I think, badly about getting Mrs. Lawrence out on false pretenses and just confesses, listen, I'm trying to go see my daughter. She's at the school in Brookline. And, and Mrs. Lawrence is like, let's go. I'm up for an adventure. We can take the tea. We can get there in a certain amount of time. So they go on this ride together. They get to the school. They The guard that um, Hannah's Martha says should be there and is a friend is not there. So um, that creates a little bit of an issue. Um, but Mrs. Lawrence gets in and June does not. And June kind of goes along the outskirts of the school. She could hear the girls playing and she's having this moment where she feels like she can hear Hannah laughing over this wall. I mean, it looks like a small military base with the barbed wire and the high walls and the armed guards. But, you know, she's having this just kind of moment of, I don't know, joy and rapture and sadness and sorrow and happiness all combined. I mean, it's a little over the top, right? Um, was it worth it? <laughs> no. This trip was not worth it. Um, 
it was not worth it. She she gets back. A guard finds her, like, kind of passed out in bliss uh, at one point, drags her back to Mrs. Lawrence, who's having now having a breakdown. And June gets very protective of her and takes her back home and is feeling very badly about what has happened. And I, I was really afraid that Commander Lawrence was just going to lay into June. But June apologizes right away and just says, you should have seen her. She came alive out there. And you can tell that it's a statement that gives Commander Lawrence pause. You know, I don't know. I don't know if in Gilead, if if you have a mental illness, if they're going to give you the medications you need to be stabilized. Like, I'm wondering if in any other situation, if if Mrs. Lawrence was not married to Commander Lawrence, would she have just been, well, she was a professor, so she probably would have been executed as outright because they they don't like, you know, women who are educated and educating others. Um, but then, you know, it makes me wonder if they're trying to weed certain things out of the gene pool. Well, I mean, she can't reproduce, but I, I don't know. I think if, if Mrs. Lawrence was not married to Commander Lawrence, I don't think she'd be alive right now. She, I think she would have either been executed or sent to the colonies. So, who knows what Commander Lawrence thinks of that statement that she came alive, but it's probably a side of his wife that he hasn't seen in quite some time where she seems really excited and uh, vibrant and, and awake and present. Um, so that was kind of sad. So like everything, um, actions have consequences. And we get to another hanging, and the woman that is front and center is Hannah's Martha. And, you know, I just thought June was in a state of shock, and that's why she didn't pick up the rope at first. But, you know, I watched a little inside the episode, and and Elizabeth Moss was saying, because right before the Martha comes out, um... I want to say it's Alma says to June, oh, the Mackenzies are gone. And the Mackenzies, of course, are the family that have Hannah. So we learn the Mackenzies are gone. And June no longer knows where Hannah is. She has no chance of seeing her, probably, again, at this point. And on the inside of the episode, Elizabeth Moss says that she, that June is blaming the Martha for Hannah being gone. Like, and I'm just like, really? Do you understand why she's really up there? Because that's not what I took from it. I took from it as they found out that Martha was going to help June see Hannah. And that's why she was up there being hanged, which was the truth. But for some weird reason, and maybe the writers or the directors or and Elizabeth Moss all interpreted this as her blaming the Martha for Hannah and the Mackenzies disappearing. When really the only person to blame, quite honestly, is June. I mean, this was all her doing. She was really pressing the envelope here, <clears throat> trying to get to see Hannah again. 
so they proceed with the hanging, and it's kind of a big one. It looks to be there, like there are, I don't know, uh, six to eight people up there, two or three of which are handmaids. So just because you're fertile does not mean that you're getting a pass anymore. Um, everyone should take note of that. Um, so just because you're fertile, you don't get a pass anymore. They hang this group of people, and then on the way out, we hear of Michael say, thank goodness, you won't be tempted anymore. And June freaking loses it. It turns out, I mean, it's not a surprise, right? We hear in the very first episode, I am her spy. She is my spy. Of Michael, while we might have had that moment where she's feeling badly that this is the fourth child she's going to get up, she's you know, she's in thick with Aunt Lydia. She has been spying on June and reporting back to Aunt Lydia and basically told Aunt Lydia that June had been talking to Hannah's Martha in the grocery store. And June is incensed. She's enraged. She tries to kill of Michael. Like, I thought she was going to throw her off that ledge walkway overpass for a minute. But instead, she starts trying to strangle her. Um, the other handmaids pull her off and she's just like, do you know what you've done? I think I played that clip at, at the beginning for you all. Cause it's kind of like, this is where we're at now. And she's like, I saved you. We saved you. And so it's, it's so crunchy, right? Because we want June to succeed in getting Hannah out of there. We want her to take down Gilead. We want her to escape with her children, everyone intact. But at the same time, she has been her own worst enemy. I mean, ugh, these last couple episodes have just been like, I mean, she seemed to be gaining some power and upper hand, but it is just, she's not. She's not. This is a brutal place. And you think you're making progress and then you get slaps in the face like this that just show you you're not. And the way of Michael is just saying, we saved you. It makes you wonder, okay, is th this is preventing June from getting executed and uh, hung on the wall. And... You know, at the beginning of the season, Aunt Lydia's like, you deserve to be on the wall. But now she's trying to protect June. So it's a huge question mark. And, um, ugh, man, just utterly brutal. Utterly brutal. And it's one of the reasons I just hate this episode so much. It's just like, oof, you know, she needs to... June needs to shape up something because if she doesn't, I mean, it is a freaking miracle that she has not been executed yet with all this stuff she tries to pull. You know, I think if it had been anyone else, it would be so much different. And who knows what's going to happen because she went full on rage on of Michael, which technically could be endangering a child since of Michael is with child. And, um, Especially since if Michael was like, you should be thankful. I was trying to save you. You know, Aunt Lydia and I were trying to save you. It's just, it kind of just makes your head want to explode. It makes my head want to explode. So I'm going to do a very quick spoiler alert, spoiler alert, because 
I always have to watch the what's happening in the next episode. I always watch, you know, that trailer, trailers to the season to come, primarily because I need to be able to mentally prepare for what might happen in that episode. And I need a couple, <laughs> I need a couple uh, points to like, help me be like, okay, it looks like this is going to happen and this is going to happen. And I just need to brace myself. I mean, I don't know. I'm also one of those people that needs to mentally prepare before I go to Ikea because it's usually such a crazy, overcrowded, nutty place. And it, um, so um, I watched the preview for the next episode and without getting into too much of what looks like it's going to happen, um, nothing good. The thing I am super freaking psyched about is that we're going to get backstory on Aunt Lydia from before. Ah, I'm pumped. <laughs> Didn't they used to say, are you pumped, dear? Oh, yeah, I'm pumped, Aunt Lydia. I've been waiting for this for, I think, since like early to middle of last season when the first couple clues about Aunt Lydia were dropped, which is one, she used to be a smoker. And two, we know she had a sister, had a baby that she was godmother to that died at like four days old. And that is all we know about her. And so I am just so excited to see this next episode, even though I have a feeling parts of it are going to be really horrible. I just, I want to get into Aunt Lydia. I want to know who she was, why she's like this, what makes her tick, and come to some type of, uh, I don't know. I just want, I want some type of closure on why she is the way she is and how she found herself in this position. You know, that's, that's what I want to know and we'll see what we get. And I'm just so super excited about this next episode, um, which thank goodness, because I think if I had not seen the trailer for this next episode, knowing we were going to get this Aunt Lydia, I think it just would have been really hard to watch, um, especially after this last Under His Eye episode. Oof, what a, what a freaking downer. So that's what's going to happen. You're going to get insight into Aunt Lydia and it's going to be amazing. I just know it is. I hope it is. So before we leave... Uh, let's do a little sister resistor of the week. Um, on the show, I think it's definitely got to go to Moira and Emily for standing up to try and keep baby Nicole in the country and getting arrested for their protest and efforts. And then um, a sister resistor for the week here in the United States. Okay, I'm going to give it to Megan Rapinoe, who is, I believe, the captain of the U.S. women's soccer team, which just won the Women's World Cup. And she is a highly controversial figure right now. Megan Rapinoe grew up about an hour away from where I did. I grew up in a place called Bernie, California. She grew up in Redding, California. And this both, well, she lives in a city. I lived in a town. And this is in like the reddest of red area of Cal Northern California. 
um, it's, it's Trump country. A lot of people feel like California is like solid blue and the majority of it's blue, but you know, you kind of go from Sacramento on up, which is not very densely populated and it's, it's red California. Um, a lot of people that live up there really, there's this kind of term state of Jefferson. They would like to break off, create their own state of Jefferson, which kind of spans part of Northern California and a little bit of Southern Oregon. So I'm giving it to Megan Rapinoe because, you know, she really, you know, she kind of said, F no, I would not go to the White House to, you know, see Trump uh, if, if we win this thing. And, you know, that was before they'd won, um, you know, a few games before they'd won the whole thing. And there's a lot of back and forth. She does not stand for the anthem. She kneels. And um, it's been a big topic of discussion on um, many Facebook feeds this week because I still have friends that live up there. You know, um, I even had family members that posted some things and someone else basically like, she doesn't stand for our country. And, and I just replied to that and I said, listen, the current administration does not value her for her gender or her sexual orientation. So let her protest in any way she feels fit because they basically, you know, treat her as a worthless citizen. And she has proven that she's not. I mean, even if she wasn't a star soccer player, she's not a worthless citizen. So I, I give it to her for just standing up for who she is and her beliefs. Um, particularly coming from such a red area as I do. Um, you know, it's not easy for people that have different views to be in the minority in, in certain, um, in, in certain places. It's, it's hard to be a blue person in a red place. Um, I'm sure it's hard to be a red person in a blue place as well. But, um, you know, sometimes you're, you're born there or you have to live there as a kid because your parents do. And, um, you know, you don't have a lot of choice when you're young and you grow up somewhere um, that's very different from who you are in your core. So I give it to her this week. Um, it's just like a lot of, you know, a lot of hate, honestly, on social media towards her, particularly even from people in her own community where she grew up, which is, it's really sad. And, um, you know, you just have to kind of rise above it and stick to your values and walk the walk. You know, everyone's entitled to do that. And, you know, too bad if, if people disagree. Um, you know, I'm not going to write in and protest because some guy wore a Make America Great Again hat on American Pickers, an episode I watched yesterday. You know, it's like, okay, he's from the South. Yeah, I get it. He supports Trump. Okay. You know, um, I just think people get way too overwrought about this not standing during the national anthem thing. Those are my thoughts for the day. Not too much going on. I have a feeling there'll definitely be a lot more to talk about next week. Um, I think I may have a guest on again next week. Um, I have to take a look at the schedule, but I know I have a few more guests that are coming up. Oh, yes. Next week, we are going to ha have Commander DJ Tim Hines on the show. He wrote in some feedback, so um, that should be a lot of fun. Uh, anyway, thank you so much for listening in. 
don't let the bastards grind you down. And if you have any feedback about theories about Aunt Lydia and what her past is like, try to get them into me, I don't know, in the next couple of days. I'll, I'll read them as like maybe like a pre-show to the episode um, about who we think Aunt Lydia is. And then we can kind of dive into uh, who she really is because we're going to find out some more. Thanks so much for listening.